Well, here we are for another episode of the On The Way podcast, and this is a very exciting one today. We're going right back to the origins of the On The Way podcast. I don't think we've ever had a guest with as much of a gap between their first and second episodes as we have today, uh, but we are back in the cathedral office here. Uh, Peter Cat is with me, and Peter, in late 2017, six years ago, you and I set off in a car together um, to, to Rosalie in Brisbane to talk to today's guest. Do you have any memories of, of that day? I do. I have a memory of being um, treated most graciously by someone who was fitting us in mm. between arriving in Brisbane and giving an evening lecture. And he really should have been having a rest, but he was decent enough to spend an hour with this fledgling podcast that had mm. almost no followers at the time. <laughs> and and um, thanks to his contribution, our follow- rate of following went up massively. Yeah, I think uh, it was our fifth or sixth episode. That's correct. Very, very early on. And, and Sue Grimmett, you missed it that day. so I did miss it. I was very <laughs> yeah. disappointed. So I'm delighted to be here and get to be in the room today. You've waited six years to get yeah. your, your go yeah, with our right. guest, which Something is wonderful. Well, waiting for. Uh, James Allison is a priest, theologian and author who is uh, probably most well known for his exploration of the work of French philosopher René Girard on desire, violence, scapegoating and essentially all of the problems that we are seeing tearing our world apart at the moment. Um, It has been six years since we uh, sat down together. James, I was just saying to you um, that, you know, you came when Australia was in the throes of the same-sex marriage plebiscite. Your next visit has been in the throes of the uh, voice to parliament referendum. You seem to visit us at big moments in our national identity. Yeah, it's when you're all distracted looking at important things. People like me (laughs) get to sneak through the frontiers and (laughs) come in and cause... (laughs) Well, look, we we want to have a conversation, um, a a delve into desire, uh, into, you know, how this actually functions in the human experience. I know that when we chatted in 2017, we did a bit of a an overview of mimetic desire and the scapegoating mechanism. Um, we'll maybe pick some of those threads up in, in a bit more detail today. But to begin with, the last six years since late 2017, how's life been for you, James? <laughs> well, uh, it's kind of got a three-year chunk in the middle, as for all of us, with COVID, uh, which kind of has made everything telescope. So it seems as though it was three years ago, in fact, rather than, mm. uh, rather than six but no, I've carried on wandering around um, spouting nonsense to the, the four winds in the hopes that some of it will come back in some sensible form. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah no, carry, carrying on doing what I do, preaching, teaching, accompanying LGBT groups in faraway places and, uh, and watching with enormous pleasure as all that has turned into something rather more positive mm. as Pope Francis's pontificate has continued and the synodal process has uh, developed positions that seemed really weird for a Catholic priest to be holding 30 years ago now seem comfortingly mainstream. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well, I I do remember when we did talk with you last time, I mean, it it made such an impact on the way I think about the human condition and and desire. It stuck with me profoundly. And so as we jump into looking at desire today, I'm wondering, how do you normally begin talking about desire and how it functions for us? How, How do you introduce this idea maybe when you're speaking to a group who, who you haven't had any time with before and who maybe you're coming in with, with no um, prior knowledge? Well, I guess it depends on their, their intellectual level of whether they want something more intellectual or something more practical. But if I were talking with for practical purposes, I would tell them a little bit about the practice of, I forget whether it was Adidas or Nike, um, whoever it was who made Air Jordans, would that have been Nike? Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Um, what they did in order to sell an awful lot of their shoes at enormous price, uh, which is that they would seek out high schools in the greater Los Angeles area and from their scouts work out who the cool kids were in those schools and then give to the cool kids a pair of these $900, that's US dollar, um, you know, flashy, all dancing, all singing, all coffee making, sports shoes, um, and within weeks they would have sold hundreds just within the neighbourhood of that school. Mm. Viral marketing, I believe it's called, and what it means is that they understood how desire works, which is you make something desirable to somebody by seeing when they get to see someone else modelling it. Mm. If something is desirable to someone else 
who you would like to be like, you have to have what they have. <laughs> and it's not, it's not even, it doesn't even work at a cognitive level. I bet you could have asked many of the kids why they wanted such and such a pair of sneakers. And they may not even have realized the route by which they'd come to pick it up because our imitative need is so, is so great. Just mm. to be like the others, to have what the others have, to be like the cool kids. Yeah. It's such a strong, such a strong uh, thing for all of us. But so that's that's the way in. Because what Girard points out is that we don't have direct desire. We don't desire. It's not that I walk around thinking what I really need is a particular pair of mm-hmm. ultra expensive Nike sports shoes. I desire according to the desire of another, someone I would like to be like. Points to the object, and behold, suddenly I have to have it. Mm. You know, one of the clear memories I have about this is a friend who always, she just loathed sport, had no interest in sport, fell in love with a guy who was really, really into cricket. And then within a year, she seemed to absolutely love cricket. And and there actually seemed to be quite an authenticity to her love of cricket. And I remember finding this quite funny, a group of friends, and I did find this quite funny, that she had somehow um, been infected, we used to say, by his love of cricket. But that is almost what happened there, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And we use infectious as though it was a bad word. I mean, contagion in that sense is actually and can be a very positive thing because that's actually how we learn an awful amount. I don't understand art. But if I go to an art gallery taken by somebody who understands art and they start to explain things, whoa. Mm. You suddenly discover how interesting and rich things can be. Or listening to music. I love opera. Friends of mine who've never liked opera, if I start explaining opera to them, they suddenly find it exciting. So it's amazing how good uh, communication, how good a form of communication can be produced by this contagion of desire. It can open us up to finding really interesting things. And so it's it's actually quite positive in some Mm. ways. Yeah. Uh, supposing, therefore, that cricket is a positive. Uh, <laughs> the humble yeah. liturgy of Ember, is it a positive? <laughs> it's funny you say that because I, I do remember <coughs> when we first chatted with you, I was quite thrown when I was reading up on, on the theory of mimetic desire in the build-up to our conversation. And I was thrown by it because in some way desire feels so central to identity. What I desire is in some way the truest essence or feels the truest essence of who I am in the world. You know, what I'm driven by, what makes me come alive. They feel so uniquely and intimately me. And yet this theory suggests they kind of aren't intimately and uniquely me. Do you you wrestle with that tension of, um, or have you seen others maybe wrestle with that tension of the discovery that their desires actually aren't theirs? Yeah, um, I think that there is a, there's a strong tendency by all of us to try and hold on to there being some, some unique, uh, I at the centre of all of this, you know, if you dig away far enough, there will be a there will be a genuine me, mm-hmm. rather than being able to accept. Well, there is a genuine you. It's your body over time, and it's how you are inducted into navigating with that body over time as you become an adult and become viable. That is a real you, but it's a real you that is given you through the other, which brings you into being. Mm-hmm. So. I think that that's very, very important because the real authenticity, I think, can come when you're not in rivalry with those desires that are producing you. You're not trying to deny that they produce you. And you're actually happy saying, yes, I recognize that that's where I come from. That's not a problem. And then I actually start to become free actually to move uh, in interesting directions. Whereas if you go and drive and say, no, I'm not like that person. No, I'm not like that person. No, I would never like this because they like it, etc., etc. Actually, you turn yourself into a smaller and smaller, increasingly convinced that you are somehow a particularly unique individual. Mm. <laughs> if that if that makes sense. I mean, that comes down to doesn't it the discrete individual idea that we all have this well that we commonly have a belief that we are our discrete unique individual, and that we find ourselves as you say, and yet we actually are only come into being ourselves in relationship. Yes. That's right. Relations are prior to us. In one sense, one thinks about it biologically, it's kind of obvious. It took two people to do something for us to exist at all. Mm. Um, And we are as dependent on that thereafter for the rest of our life. We're as dependent on other people being there to, uh, to nurture us, to teach us, and all those other things. We become a good deal more viable 
after a certain age and then get to sign up to fight wars and so on and so forth. And people think that we're uh, um, therefore are independent. But in fact, we sign up to huge gang enterprises <laughs> mm-hmm. on which we are dependent for health structures, security structures, and so on and so forth. Um, so you're right. There's a, the myth of the <coughs> individual I is a very, very powerful myth and one which I think uh, distracts us from a whole lot of other things. I mean, it's very convenient to a whole lot of other people who want to run us without us knowing it. (laughs) So being able to be aware of where we're being run by things that are good for us and for other people and where we're being run by things that are less good for us and for other people is quite an important process of discernment. Mm. Peter, I know it's a a common theme of this podcast is... Um, challenging this narrative of the individual and the cult of individualism in the world that you are your own self-made person and um, you know you'll either be one of the successful ones or the the unsuccessful ones but effectively we are all isolated sort of items walking around on this this planet and um, accumulating whatever sort of a life we want to this way of thinking about it even when you look at how desire functions it is just another reminder isn't it to us of how the how the things actually working that's right and goes back to the the uh, orthodox understanding of personhood that personhood is is the person we become through relationship and and you know, the orthodox we've often said in the um, podcast that the, the orthodox say if you want to be an individual go ahead but actually personhood is your destiny because like god we are in relationship and you know the trinity the trinity is a is a set of relationships that of three persons who actually are in relationship with each other and we uh our personhood is dependent on other people and you know, i'm for me, the prime illustration of that is when we do funerals, we just hear story after story after story of people saying, I am who I am because of my relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. And the relationship is so profound, I carry that relationship with me in my body for the rest of my existence. You know, you, you, even death cannot rob us of the personhood re- forming relationships. Yeah. So, James, on the way here to record the podcast today, we stopped at a cafe and you got some banana bread. Who gave you that desire? Do you remember? Do you remember where you caught that one from? <laughs> I don't, actually. It's a good, it's a good question, but it's, uh, it's quite a strong addiction for me <laughs> in terms of ideal breakfast types. So someone must have. <laughs> well, but it is, it's, it's a fascinating thing when you really take this to its furthest extent and you realise um, that every desire we have came from somewhere that somewhere along the line you know i think about um the first probably 15 20 times i tried red wine i didn't enjoy it at all but growing up my dad would have red wine as he would you know sit at the dinner table and i'd always remember thinking that's what you know an adult does an adult has red wine and so i kept making myself try red wine until eventually i started liking red wine and so i I can quite clearly see the link of where the red wine thing came from for Mm. me and um, and it's it's just fascinating. Almost if you if you got down and did a spreadsheet of all the desires I've got, who gave me that one? Who gave me that one? Because they're all gifted to us in a sense, aren't they? Yeah, I think my mum made banana bread, so a taste for it comes from there. But somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone added walnuts to the mix, <laughs> <laughs> and that was what really sealed the deal. <laughs> so I, I think we're culturally and and um, theologically quite suspicious of desire it's often painted as a a dangerous negative thing um is desire a good thing yeah desire is a in itself a very good thing it's what makes us human i mean without it uh, we would not be human it's what in the case of of us humans exists not instead of but as an advance on and an inflection of appetites instincts so it's what enabled us to create a vastly bigger world than any of our nearest uh, relatives, any of our nearest animal relatives could. Um, but as a good thing, it's also a very dangerous thing because all that imitation, which is a positive thing, can very, very quickly turn into its exact opposite, which is rivalry. And rivalry is only imitation against <laughs> Mm. it's exactly the same as imitation except that it's against rather than 
uh, following on according to. And that means that on a trice, we can be turned from following each other peacefully and doing something uh, collaboratively and well to all squabbling about something without us really realizing where that squabbling has come from. It only needed the tiny gesture or misstep or misunderstanding and then suddenly, boom, we're all at each other's uh, throats much more successfully than other apes which are neither so collaborative nor so uncollaborative. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, which is important. They can be very violent, but they're not as successful in their violence as uh, as, as we are. Yeah, you, you've just reminded me of being ten years old, coming home from school, and there was been a hot day, and in the fridge at my household, we had a maybe enough for one glass of lemonade left in the lemonade bottle. And the whole drive home from school, I was thinking, I can't wait to go and get the lemonade. I was fantasizing about the the taste of the lemonade and the refreshing, cool um, experience of drinking the lemonade. And it was a, a positive, wonderful, life-giving desire that I was having. What I didn't realize was that my younger brother Hudson was also wanting the lemonade. And so we get home and, I, and we both go to the fridge. And there's this moment when we both reach for the lemonade. And I realize instantly in me what was this positive, I'm, I'm looking forward to this, turned into a, a rivalry. Instantly it was me versus him. And suddenly I felt hatred towards him. And I felt it, it's so interesting to notice that from early ages, this stuff yeah. is just is just biologically happening inside of us. Yeah, very, very, yeah. very, very quick. And the contagion, um, we're, we're recording this while Israel and Palestine are in a situation of escalating violence. Mm. And that's, that is, um, that is an example of the contagion getting completely out of control. So that, you know, um, if you watch other animals fighting, they engage, and then once they've sort of, you know, they, they disengage pretty quickly, but it's, it's humans who have this incredible capacity to keep on going with vengeance, um, which is why the, you know, the early biblical writers obviously needed to say, you know, an, you, if it's an eye, you take an eye, you just, you, you stop you stop because the desire, once it gets out of control, just takes uh, takes over. And so we're just watching, we're watching the contagion mm. um, go berserk at the moment. Mm. Yeah. We we don't know how to limit, um, self limit our destructive nature. And there is no outside mechanism to deal with it. Yeah. And woe behold, those who try to step in and act as if they were an outside mechanism, yeah. because they will get sucked up into. <laughs> Can you talk a bit more about that? What do you mean there's no outside mechanism to, to stop it? Well, who is going to come down in a spaceship from heaven and say to the Hamas and uh, Netanyahu and the poor people in Gaza, basta! No one. There is no such spaceship. There is no deus ex machina. There are Russians and Americans and Brits and Iranians and... Egyptians, all of whom no doubt have things that they would like to do <laughs> and ways that they think things ought to be. And of course, the trouble is that they're also aware of the danger of that contagion spreading amongst them the moment they do step in. And they're right to be worried about that. We are right to be worried about that mm. because that's how these things work. Yeah. It seems the US has for many years seen themselves almost as the spaceship, though who can come in externally and set things right as they're meant to be. Well, and for the for most of the last 50, 60 years, they have been so obviously the biggest uh, cop on the block uh, that that has been plausible. One of the things that enables relatively peaceful coexistence is when someone is so exterior, because they're so much bigger than the other, that other forms of rivalry are unlikely to uh, become fatal. Mm. But as... The top, the top cop on the block becomes relatively similar to other cops on the block and is perceived as being relatively similar to other cops on the block. What Jihad refers to as external mediation, in other words, when you have a distant model who therefore can exercise power uh, in relatively brutal ways without you being able to do anything about it. When they become internal mediators, which is when they become closer and closer to who you are, you don't actually respect their difference any longer. And that means it becomes more and more 
impossible to enter into rivalry with them and for the rivalry just to become absolutely generalised. And this probably leads us into, uh, we should touch on, again, um, the scapegoating mechanism as a way humans have kind of developed, um, I think I've heard you describe it as a shortcut. It's a shortcut yes. attempt at trying to get unity. We all want unity. We all want peace. And um, and so scapegoating is, is kind of this, this cheat we try to do to get it's, there. It's the shortcut. And yeah. it works. It works for a bit. Yes. And the, yeah, the, scapegoat, the scapegoating mechanism is when we manage, and we're usually not aware how while we're in the midst of the frenzy, we manage... We the wrong word. We find ourselves in a place where the all against all is suddenly becoming an all against one, mm. and then we can find someone to blame, and then for a moment at least we're all at peace because we found out who the bad guy was. That enables us to get our stories into into line about how we're part of the good guys, and it's all the fault of well, as it may be Hamas or Iran or Netanyahu or whoever it is who's on the <laughs> receiving end of the short straw. Uh, as what we call the short straw being quite literally how a scapegoating mechanism used to work as a lottery. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And, yeah. And the thing that strikes me is how how instinctive this is. I was just yesterday, I was mm. in a conversation with a colleague about someone who I felt had scapegoated me a bit. And I was telling this story and, and you know, recounting, I guess, my struggle with it. And then I almost noticed myself a few minutes later, the way I was speaking about this person who I felt had scapegoated me, and I was now scapegoating them, you know, effectively saying, well, they think I'm the problem and, you know, if they got rid of me, everything would be wonderful. And then I was now saying only two minutes after expressing how difficult I had found that, and they're the problem. If we just got rid of them, everything would be wonderful. I don't, yeah. It just seems to, even when we're in the midst of noticing it, it still gets its claws into us, doesn't it? Yeah, which is why... Uh, it, there's a, an extraordinary chapter in Matthew's Gospel whose number I will now forget, but I think it's 12, uh, when he talks about how you handle gossip or how you handle criticism in community um, is is so extraordinary because he says, if you have a problem with your brother, first seek to f- speak to him alone and explain to him what he's done done wrong. And if he doesn't listen to you, go and find a witness and then talk to him, and then the two of you together talk to that person and explain to him, and if he still doesn't pay attention, call the whole community. And then they can all explain to him what he's done wrong, and then if he doesn't pay attention to any of them, then treat him as a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, all we think, oh, yes, so, okay, so a slow build-up to a, a mass expulsion. But actually, it's just the reverse of that, because there's almost nothing so difficult as facing the person directly. <laughs> mm. So the very first step requires you or me not to talk about our colleague, but to actually go and see them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which means that we run the risk of exactly the same thing happening to us as we think happens to them. In other words, our learning what we have been doing wrong <laughs> rather than us convincing them that what they've been doing is wrong. And so, what's the next step? Well, if after that we're unsure, we go and find a witness. Well, that means convincing someone else that we were on the right side and what that person did is wrong. But at the same time, that's rather difficult because it means actually becoming vulnerable to someone else with a view to see whether that person really was doing something wrong, whether they say, well, actually, you know, I'm thinking about it another way, I'm not so sure that blah, blah, blah. You can imagine how... So actually, the process of getting to the point where the community is in agreement is a very slow, difficult one, unless it's conducted by gossip. If it's done by gossip without anybody facing each other, then it can be built up, which is why you know, the, the genius behind uh, a lynch mob is always gossip. The, the whisperer behind the lynch is the failure of anybody actually to talk to each other, to face up to each other. <laughs> but I think that, that Matthew's gospel is, is beautiful in that precisely people are thinking, oh, look, Jesus is teaching people how to scapegoat. No, he's not. He's giving instructions that make it very, very difficult to scapegoat because it obliges people to face each other, which is the most difficult. Everybody wants to drop the first two parts of that <laughs> and move straight to the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And it's interesting, isn't it, too, how we can we can point to the Middle East and think we could come up with a solution, and yet we struggle so much. You know, so our first steps are always uh, how to do that first hard step uh, of talking directly to someone. And and in doing that, I you know I think we also it's that reflecting we learn about ourselves through a relationship. We actually. Um, I think I heard you say it last night in the lecture, James, talking about becoming, we become less intelligent the more we, we retreat into ourselves or to our own patterns. Whereas if we are engaging with the person who is causing us a problem, there's a chance that we're going to see something from a new perspective. There's a chance that we're going to, particularly by the discomfort and the courage required to go and do that in the first place, I think you're, going to, you're, in, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position whereby you might learn. And where, yes, reality might break through. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's so interesting that, that, you know, hearing this, speaking of just the, uh, the, the observation of how this is running everything. I've, I think I shared this story once before on the podcast, but I had a, a stark realisation a bunch of years ago, James. I was um, at a cafe waiting for a friend on a, on a Saturday morning and he was running a, a few minutes late. And so I was just sitting there and I ended up eavesdropping a little bit into the conversations on the tables around me. And I realized how much this is everywhere. This is the whole show because at one table next to me, there was complaining about a boss and the way both people were speaking was without any awareness of what was running the show here, but just saying, honestly, the company's gone downhill since he joined. And, and if only he left, it would be wonderful. Everything he's done has ruined everything. And to the other side of me, there were two people who, you know, I think two guys who were talking about one of their girlfriends and how, well, she just can't commit. And the problem is she's never been able to commit and she's taken your whole life down and all these sorts of things. And basically around me was this ecosystem of people who had found the villain, had found the one problem, had found the unique flaw in the human species and just needed to get rid of them and everything would be wonderful again. And, and it's so, it's, we just get almost like a, a tide. We just get swept back to this again and again and again. Well, I'm, I'm curious, what do you do in terms of a practice to, to notice how you or when you get caught up in in another <laughs> scapegoating narrative just hope that someone will call me on it i'm afraid <laughs> yeah i used to think i was quite good at noticing that myself but i'm afraid that uh, I, uh, I, 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 it's just very difficult one needs other people to yeah. to, to catch one <laughs> I, I love that you say that though because we are so hard on ourselves and i think we we and the church does this too we think we, we can set up systems where we're almost escaping our humanity where we are managing to rise above it in some way, where these things don't affect us anymore, because they're, um, again, we're in that, um, we flick back to a moral kind of argument. Is it morally wrong? We should not do this. But if we can just get our systems, our structures right, our, our practices right, then we can somehow rise above this. Instead of finding um, systems and structures that actually embrace our humanity, that are completely honest, because when, even when we're talking about going directly to someone, what we're talking about is truth-telling. And all of this comes down to are we prepared to be vulnerable enough to be truth-telling and compassionate enough to recognise that we all need, um, we all fall into these patterns and we're caught up in these systems. But so, so things that actually acknowledge our humanity, embrace and celebrate our humanity instead of thinking that somehow we can transcend all of these desires. I, th I think that's absolutely right. It's one of the, one of the things that I've been attempting to understand better as, if you like, the full humanity of gay people becomes more obvious within church structure. Eventually, there comes a moment when it stops being a discussion about them. But before it can be a discussion about we, someone has to be able to say you. Mm -hmm. Someone has to be able to look at us mm -hmm. who are gay people and say you in such a way that makes it clear to us that our humanity is seen. And we have to be able to say you in such a way that is not accusatory. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly difficult. The only person, you know, I think this is one of the key things when Jesus says, you know, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. It's the only person who can say you <laughs> to us. All other forms of you come with accents. <laughs> but I think that it's absolutely key to the possibility of there being a we is that it doesn't elide the moment of saying you to each other. 
a peaceful you is the most difficult thing to say because it requires looking at each other and that's when we're reflexive mm -hmm. and that's when it's most a great possibility that we'll be rivals. It reminds me, you've said somewhere else, James, uh, in listening to a few of your talks and I can't remember which one it was, but you said um, something like, humanity is not a trap or this being alive is not a trap. And that sense of, um, that I took from it, you know, that, that we, when we try and see things in moral terms, right, wrong, then all of our desires become things that we should really be suppressing, putting away, as if the way that we're actually wired, whether we're talking mimetic theory, whether we're talking rivalry, the way that we are, this is what we're caught up in, that that is um, something we need to, to, that it's about resisting that to the best of our strength and moral will, um, and that makes actually being born on this planet, if we've got a God who's discerning things in those ways, that makes the whole thing a trap. That was the way I was kind of yes. reading that. Yeah. I think that's right. Mm. God is not out to get us. Mm. And I think that's really, that's really such an important thing because so much discourse uh, about they or power or whatever mm. assumes a, an out to get us quality mm. about the universe mm. <laughs> and about human structures within the universe. Mm. And actually to say, well, that may appear to be the case in lots of, of ways, but it's not what is real. Yeah. What is real is something given, yeah. it's something peaceful, mm -hmm. and it can be dwelt in without running away from all those things as long as we get them in the right perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, that's not an easy, that's not an easy, certainly not for me at least. But uh, <laughs> it, it probably moves us into something I did want to ask you about. As a, um, as a, I guess, someone who self-identifies as a progressive um, person, I've always been quite suspicious of the doctrine of original sin, much preferred talking about original blessing and, you know, because I probably grew up in a tradition that was very big on humanity is awful and, you know, a price needed to be paid to satisfy the wrath of God and all that sort of narrative that, that I heard a lot growing up. But your unpacking of, of a different way of looking at original sin, I think is profoundly helpful when we're talking about all of these things and, and what it is to be a human being. Can you talk a, a little bit about how you approach original sin, James? Yeah, well... <clears throat> just let me take you back a few minutes to when you were talking about your uh, eavesdropping in the cafe. You heard, you heard two quite discreet couples managing to find the sole source of evil in the universe. So you perceived exactly what original sin <laughs> is. Original sin is the recognition that all all of us equally are involved in that. And how do we know that? Because we are being forgiven for it. In other words, it's the knowledge of the forgiveness of that that makes that possible as something we can leave behind, that knowledge possible as something we can leave behind. Mm. You've, you've, you could see people doing exactly what we all do, and you are right, it is universal. <laughs> And the doctrine of original sin is you are being forgiven for that. God is amongst us as one for whom our access to creation is through forgiveness. That's all that the doctrine of original uh, sin means. I mean, it's quite a complicated because you have to think of it the other way around. <clears throat> what do you mean the other way around? Well, starting from being forgiven. I mean, our only access to any understanding of sin is that of which, that for which you can be forgiven. There isn't a discrete meaning of sin that just stands by itself. Right, sure. <laughs> sure, sure. Sin is only sin in as far as it can be forgiven. There are things we can't forgive you for. For instance, the colour of your hair is not capable of being forgiven. <laughs> by that I don't mean that you might not paint it purple if you wanted to, uh, but it's not in itself something that can be forgiven. That's how we know it's not a sin. Yeah. Uh, things that are affixed are not sins. Mental health problems are not sins. You know when something is a sin when it's in the process of being forgiven. And you think, oh my God, I was doing that. And now I see that while it seemed to me to be perfectly natural and normal, I was in fact harming X, Y, and Z and actually destroying myself at the same time. Mm. But so... Forgiveness is prior to sin. Sin is ancillary to forgiveness. Mm, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And that's hugely important because it follows the, the other side. The Christian doctrine of original sin comes from the resurrection of, of Christ, therefore the making visible and available to us what God had been doing in Christ, which was forgiving us. And it's once that we can say, oh my God, yes, we've been involved in this ever since there has been a humanity. Yeah, so almost like the healing is worked into the wound. From yes. The, from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Yeah. From the very beginning. So, and I think that's enormously, it's enormously significant, therefore, the doctrine of original sin, rather than being a mass accusation, is a mass illustration of forgiveness breaking through into something which, without too much difficulty, we can identify. The piece of original sin that people don't get is the fact that it depends on forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Most people are able to say, well, there's something wrong with us. But that's not what the doctrine of original sin says. That's pretty obvious to, to anybody. There's something wrong with being human. We always seem to screw it up. And just when we think we're living at peace, there's a, another bloody outrage of, of violence or bombing or a terrorist attack or whatever. Uh, th- that which is unique to the understanding of original sin is that it's forgiveness that makes available to us the view of what we're doing so that we can leave it behind and we become aware of it as we leave it behind. I think that's the important point where you become aware of it as you leave it behind. Yeah. I think one of the, I've been thinking a bit lately about um, criticisms of prevenient grace and well, what Bonhoeffer described as cheap grace, particularly in the light of colonisation. People who say, look, that's in the past, can't we just forgive it, move on? God forgives, aren't we meant to be doing that? And of course it's done without truth telling, it's done without repentance. And... Um, what you know, Bonhoeffer talks about, I think, or was it um, Kierkegaard? Well, in the play Faust, he was saying that knowledge. You know, you can. You can well, Faust says in the in in the play, you come to the end of your life and you can say, "I know nothing," and yet a young man saying, "I know nothing, therefore I don't need to learn anything," is a very different thing. And so, in that illustration, they were talking about grace. I guess it's the same thing that St Paul was saying. Does it? You know, do we go out and say, "Therefore we sin the more," and and then we're getting into definitions of how we understand sin but I do think there is a fault in why people have been resisting the idea of great of forgiveness there before the prevenient grace is because people have taken this idea looking forward instead of seeing it in hindsight that that is was there at the start but you see it as you go there are um, to claim it and say let's just move on without any of that um, truth-telling without any repentance and that in the context of colonization um, can uh, really then people say well prevenient grace is, is is a damaging concept when they see it that way I mean if prevenient grace is to do with a decree of forgiveness then it's a damaging uh, conscience because the whole purpose of our being forgiven is shown in our becoming penitent mm-hmm. and that's the, the medieval definition which is that the form which forgiveness takes in our life is penitence. It's the breaking of the heart that is the shape of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So, and curiously, this is a bizarre thing to say, um, what does the shape of forgiveness look like when the matter's colonial? Mm-hmm. Well, it, looks as, it looks as though people like me with a splendid colonial and Anglo past learning to become penitent learning to realize how dependent I've been on on structures of injustice all, all my life uh, without my necessarily having done anything particular other than, as it were, surf to the wave <laughs> that, that others are put there and thinking, oh my God, I've been involved in all that. I had ancestors who owned slaves. I had ancestors in this country who must have treated Aboriginal people abominably, even if I know nothing of the particular story. but. If my, my great-great-grandfather was mayor of Sydney in the 1890s, which he was, I suspect that there must have been, let's say, attitudes towards <laughs> native Australians and terra nullius, of which nowadays we should rightly be ashamed. But that learning process is what forgiveness looks like. So bizarrely, this is a bizarrely thing, that what penitence looks like is woke. <laughs> yes, yes. And the trouble with woke... The trouble with woke is when it's impenitent woke. It's when people have received a little bit of forgiveness and then turn that into a new form of self-righteousness to accuse other people yeah. with, yeah. if yeah. that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, forgiveness is um, when one recognises it, drives us to tears and drives us to uh, 
the deepest form of self-reflection and what can I do differently and how can I make how can I make amends? I'm not because I'm required to make amends. It's because I want, want to. I want to. Yes. I need to. In I my very to. being, I need to do this um, so that things are different. And it's not about paying a penalty or a price. It's actually a desire to be part of transformation. A knowledge, a knowledge yeah. that you have to love some people. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, but I, I entirely agree. I think that the ability to understand uh, the, the shape of forgiveness in our lives as penitents and to see that in historical terms is absolutely vital to the discussions of racial equality, of conquest, of colonialism, etc., etc. Uh, absolutely. That's that's just such. It's so interesting when you just come at it from the different angle or from a, a different perspective. Things that in one reading seem really heavy and burdensome and um, all about guilt trips and accusations suddenly become about the the very same things can be read as liberation and enlightenment. And, and actually something quite joyful, in a sense. Well, and that seems to me that that's the difference between this being uh, a theological approach to the issue rather than a political science approach to the, uh, to the issue. Political science would always be arguing about what are the limits of liberalism, which eventually then ends up with being a discussion about an individual's rights not to be forgiven, <laughs> but to be able to carry on doing it because they're a modern individual who doesn't owe anybody anything, you think. Okay, no, but that's not not really compatible with Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> One of your early books, um, James, was called "The Joy of Being Wrong," which I thought was an amazing title that really captured that that yeah. sense of discovering the wrong and getting a, a deep joy out of it because yes. there's actually a transformative path yeah. out of it. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. well, that's what it's about. That's, yeah. That was my attempt to answer the original sin question. Yeah, yeah, no, these many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Almost last century, I think it was last century. <laughs> yes. But it's about transforming desire. You know, yes. in what you're saying, Peter, about we, we want to, to, you know, that want desire to. of our hearts mm. to make reparation, yes. a desire for, for, um, for flourishing of each other and um, what that will entail and all of what will entail, but it comes from, from that place because our hearts have been changed. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's such a... The transformation of desire is something I feel like we touch on every few episodes <laughs> because it does... I think it was Peter Kleimerlas who said um, how we change desire really is the question uh, that faces the world. You know, how do, we, how do we change desire is the only way we're going to actually change really anything fundamentally. So how, how do we transform desire, James? Is it transformable? Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you asked me because it, your, your phrasing of it, how we change desire, suggests that there is an I or a we that is outside of it and can, as it were, exercise a position from above. And, of course, that's not true. We are constituted by desire. So the whole question is always which other is moving us, not what can we do? Which other is moving us? And to what extent can we choose? Can we detect and choose which forms of desire? So I think that it's becoming aware of which other is moving us and accepting being moved by some desires and resisting being moved by other desires. Um, that's about as much, uh, what's the word? Freedom is the wrong word. As much consciousness we have of, of being aware, which I think is why what we were talking about yesterday, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, is much to be explored now because it's a great deal to do with how we are moved by another at a pre-cognitive level which also has cognitive elements but it's a pre-cognitive moving it's a relational moving mm. and us having to learn how to detect whether it's a relational moving in the direction of peace or a relational moving in the direction of rivalry um, <laughs> mm -hmm. because there are, there are many social others which move us that sound good, but are in fact playing to our worst elements and giving us quick shots of identity by turning us into little monsters over against others. Um, and by God, they're attractive. Mm -hmm. What fun it is to be given a, an identity as a crusader for a day and to know who is good and who is bad and to be able to fight and think of yourself as someone before you realize that it, that was a sugar rush. It was the equivalent of uh, a junk identity. It's the equivalent of a Mac meal. 
um, high on taste and low on health-giving substance, <laughs> uh, and trying to say, no, what does it look like to receive the desires of the Spirit? How does the Spirit teach me how to be? And that's that's a long and slow, uh, a long and slow process. But the we sits rides on that. The we does not dominate <laughs> that. If the we dominates that, it means that there is still uh, a rivalous, eye, a rivalistic eye that is in charge. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's so fascinating that you say that. I know um, I've shared this one before, I think as well, but. Uh, early on in the history of this podcast, I, uh, some people introduced me to the idea of non-dualism um, when we were starting off here. And as someone who'd grown up in a very, you know, tribalistic version of religion, it was such a healing balm, I think, to come across this sense of, of there isn't a black and white hero villain. It, it, it's much more complex and there's a love bigger than all of that. You know, that, that was quite a profound movement for me. And it took roughly, I reckon, three weeks before I noticed in myself that I'd become very dualistic about how non-dualism was the right way forward. And <laughs> I, just, I had just set the, the goalposts yeah. up again on a different field. And, and so there's this thing constantly, we're, we're being sucked back into that, that narrative like a vortex again and again and again, even in its undoing, that can be used as another form of its narrative. Yeah. yeah. So it's usually, I think, uh, and I hope that this is not bad news for you, uh, <laughs> it's usually through experiences of losing yeah. and of loss mm -hmm. that we finally are able to let go of the things that cause us to immediately reconstitute and reconstruct things. And that's not pleasant for anybody, but that is what baptism is all about. <laughs> mm -hmm. Baptism is the agreement to die in advance. <laughs> it's the <laughs> as far as I can see, that's exactly what it is. And the power, which is more remarkable, the power and the grace to be able to do that while we are yet alive, to be able to die in advance while we are alive, so that we begin to be able to live without being run by death. I think that that's the point of the sign, the sacrament. Some of that dying is also dying to that the you talk about the the like the sugar rush of of being the crusader, or, or often that happens in the context of belonging to a group or a tribe, you know, and that's why it's also so attractive. Um, when people are, are tired, they're feeling disconnected. This does offer a quicker way to belonging, and and some of that call to die, I think, is is releasing some of that, which you know is, is not true belonging anyway. I guess. <laughs> no, well, that, but that's right, but. Yeah, like for me, that that is one of the central questions now with being Christian, uh, is given the collapses of all sorts of belonging in our Western world, at least, what is the form of belonging? I would suggest weak belonging that is going to be the future shape of church, of people who are together without being over against uh, anybody at all. And it's very difficult because the, temp the temptation mm -hmm. is to new forms of strong belonging if we can possibly find it. Mm. So we suddenly admire bright, young, conservative groups that seem to have got their act together. But that's a sugar rush. Yeah. Uh, it's a sugar rush whether in its, in its Catholic or its Protestant uh, varieties. It's the same thing. It's the ability to lose different sorts of belonging and find oneself held in a new sort of belonging by someone who is not forcing boundaries. But that's not so sexy as a, <laughs> as a bright new club. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's very, very difficult. I think that that's what Francis is um, trying to get across with the, the synodality. This is going to involve discussions. Discussions involve agree, agreement to lose identities over against. It involves learning. Uh, and it involves no place of advantage. Yes. <laughs> over others, which seems to me to be a very difficult thing for, uh, for any of us to get our, our, head, our, head, over, our head around. Yes. Mm. Yeah, in, in the build-up to this conversation, um, Peter, you were talking a, li a little bit about your intrigue in fame and the cult of fame that has taken off in the world in the last 50 or 100 years. Interestingly, alongside the decline of being, you know, belonging to, to organizations or larger groups mm, of community. Mm. It's almost like the belonging we find now is being a, a, a Donald Trump supporter or a Taylor Swift mm. fan, a Swifty or something like that. That's where yeah. we find our belonging yeah, is the right. cult of an individual, um, which is very much the stuff we're talking about, isn't it? It sure is. Um, yeah, fame has really uh, fascinated me for quite a few years now because we seem 
Because we don't have any belonging in that broad sense, we suddenly find ourselves swept along um, behind particular people. And I'm really interested in how one person becomes famous. When, when one looks at their life, they're really no different to a whole bunch of other people. But then so it seems to me there's some sort of mimetic um, thing going on there where one person starts to follow a person and then others follow because they're following. And, and then we've got the TikTok influencers who I think are, uh, are real expressions of this, this desire and the focusing of it and how then mm-hmm. we can be corrupted by it. So you know, Donald Trump is the I think the extreme um, version of it he is only interested in Donald Trump and yet somehow he has managed to attract a whole bunch of people who think that he is actually interested in them and I'm just I'm just totally fascinated by how that takes off and how it's corrupting um, whole systems like the American it seems to me that like the whole American democracy experiment is actually falling apart as we are sitting here watching it mm-hmm. and you know 50 years ago they would have said that they were so strong that you know and, and they were exporting democracy in really crude ways we now see to the rest of the world as if it was the panacea and here it is being deconstructed before our very eyes just fascinating yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the United States. I visit there frequently. And every time I go there, I come away aware that I've, I've understood it less. Yes. Uh, but it seems to me that it is uh, an extraordinary experiment, but that it does not have a rosy past. Yeah. I mean, if you think about every generation of the United States history, there has been a major internal upset of some sort that has given it the impression that it's about to collapse. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 50 years ago, it was the Vietnam War with all the... Uh-huh. <laughs> a generation, I mean, 10 years before that, it was civil rights. And McCarthyism, I guess. For half yeah. of the, the country, it felt as though the world was falling apart because black people were being allowed to speak and et cetera, et cetera. Not long before that, there was a civil war, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm rather impressed by the slow agonizingly slow process all the law suits uh, are going on <laughs> but there is something remarkably remarkably stable yeah. about the fact that it's tediously boring lawsuits in mm. that most legalistic of countries yeah. because it is the most legalistic of countries that I know that is seems to be holding the show together and who knows whether it'll do it in time or not? Because yes. no one, uh, in each of the previous ones, no one has known yes. whether it will do it in time. So I don't know. But in the case of Trump and the feeling that other people think that he cares for them, yes. I do think that there is something remarkable there which he shares with Boris Johnson, uh, which is how he has become a vector for shamelessness. Mm. So I don't think it's... I don't know, I mean, fame is whatever is, the, is, is marketing uh, in, in, in this sense. It's him getting on The Apprentice and knowing how to. But the thing about him, which I think we forget at our, at our peril, is A, he is entirely shameless, which is the sign of a obviously profound personal problems and, and you know, mental health issues. That, and we can comment on to our heart's content, but it makes no difference. Mm, indeed. Um, uh, but he's a vector for shamelessness. He enables people to feel good about their worst passions. Mm. But also, he's entertaining. What mm. what mm. looks to, yes. mo- to most of us to be mad. I mean, one watches these rambling speeches in which yes. he talks about nothing at all. He's now become convinced that whales are being killed by uh, windmills. Yes. Uh, he has the, the literally... The craziest yes. views on any average, but he's entertaining. Yes, the people who listen to them to, to those things are not wondering about the truthfulness of what he's no. saying. They're no. being entertained by someone yes. who makes feel them feel good about themselves, yes. while also feeling resentful and resent and vengeful towards others. Mm. 
Mm. So he's giving them that marvelously, uh, he's giving that, that feeling of belonging, mm. which plays very well. And that's why they think that he knows them. Yes. And that he cares for them, because he's doing that to them. And Boris was the same. Boris was brilliant at playing the buffoon. Um, but again, it's another one. As a person who is simply not in contact with any shame of his own, and therefore yes. is a marvellous vector for shamelessness. But so, for me, the issue, rather than fame, is shame. Shame. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, if fame is glory, the reverse of glory is shame. In the New Testament, it, they always come as a... Uh, as a parallel to each other, the doxa, the glory, is what is reputation. Shame is, of course, bad reputation. <laughs> it's how you are held in the eyes of another. And it seems to me that one of the really difficult things we have to do now as Christians is work out how to enable ourselves and others not to be run by our shame, but mm. to hold our shame tenderly. Mm. Mm. Because it's very easy to trip people, to trigger people into the contempt that comes from having their shame revealed. That's right. <laughs> and yeah. being attacked and feeling shamed. And of course that is a way to guarantee polarization yes. between actually with people who are very like us. Yes. Yeah, because people of integrity, people of integrity get called out and they experience shame and then they resign. Um, Trump can't be called out because he has no shame. Yeah. Well, forget Trump. I'm interested yeah. in the people who are who are sucked in. It's the people who live in nothing Tennessee or whatever yes, it is. Yes, yes. Whose interests are not being served by yes. this trip because this trip is always being used by other people for other, mm. for other purposes. Mm. So how are we alongside yes. those whose shame is being so easily manipulated? Yeah. How are we enabled to be alongside such people without ramping up their shame. Without ramping up their shame, yeah. That seems to me to be uh, mm. uh, an absolute, absolutely vital part of evangelization at this, yeah. uh, at this point. Right. I that, think, because it is a court, shame's a weapon for manipulation. Yes, and exactly. And even in our own communities, you know, we, when, there's, when there's toxic conflicts, you don't need to look far, and shame will be lurking there somewhere. Absolutely. And yeah. what shame does is drive people away from the truth. It yes. drives people to hide. Things are, it, it just grows in the darkness and people are then siloed into their camps and no one's telling the truth. Um, and meanwhile, while that shame is sitting there, it is much more easily manipulated. The higher the, 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 the emotional level of shame, the more easily you will be manipulated. People can play to it, yeah. Mm. So mm. I, that, mm. For me, that's, when people talk about polarisation, I don't really believe in polarization. I think polari because polarization presupposes people are genuinely being very different. I yeah. think we're all much more similar. Yes. And that polarization is cheap difference that enables us to play off each other. Yeah. Uh, and that the root of that, the root of overcoming that is facing our own shame and not trying to produce it in others. <laughs> mm. Not trying to produce it in others, which is the standard liberal thing. <laughs> because yeah. because yeah. that can be a way of, of mm -hmm. accusing other people of being backwards and so on and so forth mm -hmm. no that involves recognizing that i'm running from something and i'm alongside you who are inclined to lock into contempt mm -hmm. of the positive because you feel your shame is not being met yes. yeah. and how we uh, mm. i'm not sure what the answer is no. but it does seem to be that until we start to face that it's uh uh, hmm. It's a fool's game. <laughs> sure. What about just the sort of the um, other angle of fame, where we do have these TikTok influencers who become famous? Mm. Um, it seems to me that it's it's just a mimetic thing happening over and because you, know, you, you know, occasionally I will um, stumble across one of the a video by a, a, an influencer, and I think to myself. There's something I'm missing. There's some something I haven't touched into that make. You know, it, it, it seems to me to be ridiculous because it's actually not speaking to something in me. It's like when I watch TV ads. You know, there are the ads I laugh at, and then there are the ads that suck me in. And I, when I when I'm when I'm attuned to it, I realise that the the ad I laughed at was never intended 
to spark my desire. And then the ad that gets me in was just beautifully psychologically tuned to bing. Hit well, Peter dare Kutz's I say desire. it, Father, I suggest that the majority of TikTokers are, are actually <laughs> That's right. not That's relating exactly. to our age That's group. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's which is why I'm, which, which is why, yes, we, we sort of... Yes, the the the, the deans do call the me Papa Smurf. Yeah. Um, yes, so yes, but yeah, you know, it's, it's just interesting to watch how that sort of how fame operates when in, often there's no substance behind yes. it. Yes, yeah. and the curious thing about that is that one of the things which I've noticed is actually how fluent young people are in coping with that and leaping from short-time celebrity to short-time celebrity without it being too damaging uh-huh. and without there being too much hate. And they're being well aware of the risks of scapegoating because, uh, you know, the, the social media have been fantastic instruments of scapegoating mm-hmm. in high schools and things like that and mm-hmm. nude pics of, you know, there are a whole variety of ways of shaming that have been done that. Which curiously means that people are very aware of the mechanism um, at a much, much younger age than... Uh, and so you get short-term celebrities who are by no means harmful people. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And uh, but I, I remember this. And this is a, this is a bizarre thing to say. My I have an a, adopted son who's Brazilian, um, and from a very deprived, very deprived background in the favela in, in Brazil. And he and his mates love the Kardashians. <laughs> and I wondered for a long time. Why? Why would somebody from the favela love the Kardashians? And little by little, I learned. It's the fact that unlike people who are genuinely famous for being genuinely successful or something, here is a bunch of people who are endlessly affluent with no rational source for their affluence and who spend their entire time bitching and shopping. Yes. And that if you're a favela person, the dream world is, you know that you're unlikely to become a hugely successful, you know, astronaut or doctor of physics or Nobel Prize winner, doctor, but that you could aspire to be a bitchy family that with endless affluence was able to go shopping. Wow, that is a little door into paradise. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and I think we forget mm. <laughs> how these things work. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's something in that in the TikTok influences is this idea of, I think a lot of people, young people maybe are resisting the dreariness of a nine to five office job and think, imagine if I could be one of these people who gets flown first class to go on a holiday to Hawaii and take my videos on the beach and I'm doing it just to promote the Hawaiian company. There's something about a lifestyle that's being offered that's outside yeah. of the rat race yes. that yeah, is aspirational. Mm. It's aspirational, yeah. yeah dream as well. So, well, look, uh, this is, I mean, this stuff, I feel like, I think I said this to you last time, James. This I feel like it needs to be in the the school curriculums about how we function as humans because it is so sure pivotal does. to to how this whole game works. And as we speak about shame, I, I'm thinking about how that ties all the way into the start of the conversation that shame and desire are so closely linked. That there's the things where that it's good to desire that we're allowed to desire. Um, you know, no one's going to shame you for saying, oh, I would just love to have a good sleep right now, maybe. That's, that's probably not going to get too much shame. But there's other desires we might have that, that instantly we hear the voice of shame when they emerge. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, in our lives as we're all riding these various waves of desires and catching various desires from others and trying to avoid shame and all that comes with that, how do we discern wisely the, uh, the <laughs> desires that are of life and the desires that perhaps are not. Mm. Have me back again in six years' time. <laughs> no, but, but I think that's what, that's what prayer is about, isn't it? Prayer is going into the pantry, the larder, the place uh, where there are no windows so that you can't be acting out for the approval of others or for the hatred of others. Because that's yeah. the part of the point of our getting cheap identity. We can get cheap identity from the, seeking the approval of others, but also from seeking the, the reprobation of others, because that makes us think, oh, yeah, I must be doing something right, they all hate me. You know, so that occupying a victim status is as part of the game as occupying a, an obedient and a, an approved person's status. So learning to be in a place where 
the only voice we get to hear is the silent voice of God, which is turning us into sons or daughters. That involves learning to distinguish voices mm. and realizing, oh, actually, and maybe even the Father's voice isn't a voice in the sense of someone who affects that way. Maybe the Father's voice is only heard when I am start to able bit to say I and other people are able to notice a son. In other words, mm. if you like, it's only when we have become, when we're riding on the crest of a different wave <laughs> that other people, not we, <laughs> will notice that we are in fact being run uh, by the thing. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. A frightening sense, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but some sort of sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, it, it's always a treat sharing a conversation, James. And yeah, going off our current schedule, what are you doing in 2029? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Preparing for the Brisbane Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, you do have a, a new book coming out sometime soon, hopefully. How can people follow you and, and stay across when that news will be announced? Well, uh, I do have a website, which is www.jamesallison.com. So things of mine tend to appear there, thanks to my wonderful webmaster, Iha. Beautiful, wonderful. And it's Ellison with one L. One L, well, oh yes. It's important uh, to mention. If you give me two L's, you give me a dollar. If I got a dollar for every time I got given two L's, I would be a very rich man <laughs> and have a palace on the south coast of France. <laughs> <laughs> with the Kardashians. The Kardashians. <laughs> yes, and my son would adore me. Yes. <laughs> uh, James, it's been a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you.